This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We brought ourselves to the threshold of true climate catastrophe in the time span of a single generation. We now have about the time of a single generation to avoid unimaginable suffering, and we are the ones writing that story. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am not Ezra Klein. In fact, my name is David Roberts. I'm a staff writer here at Vox. I cover energy and climate change and the politics thereof. Our guest is David Wallace-Wells, the author of a new book on climate change called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. I hesitate to kick off my podcast career with a moldy cliche, but if you read only one book on global warming, make it this book. It is a painful and sometimes emotional read. I had to put it down a few times, walk my dog, hug my kids, uh, but every word feels necessary. I loved my conversation with the other David. We uh, talked about exactly what it means that climate change is worse than you think and what's in store for us. Uh, we talked about the dark, blunt tone of his writing, the lack of sort of canned and scripted hope, and the sort of tension that's caused among the climate communications and, and climate science crowd. Uh, and we talked about U.S. climate politics and all their glorious and ongoing dysfunction. And finally, we talked about how climate might in the 21st century shape our imaginations, our art, our sense of history, our sense of identity, the stories we tell our children about what kind of world they live in. Uh, it was, as any conversation on this subject, uh, not always <laughs> the most uplifting, but it was very interesting, I thought, and I think you'll really enjoy it. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here, without further ado, is David Wallace-Wells. David Wallace-Wells, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here and talking to you in particular. First, I have to ask, uh, David, have you read the famed... Dr. Seuss story, Too Many Daves. 
I can't say that I have, but I, something tells me I know the meaning already. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was our anthem. Uh, well, you should check it out. I have I have uh, occasion to think about it quite frequently. My mom tells me that in the um, in the nursery school where she put me, that there were I think the stat is there were six kids in my class and four of them were named David. <laughs> well, try having a last name like Robert. Yeah. I've been clawing my way up the uh, Google search results my whole my whole career. <laughs> Uh, On to the serious stuff, though. So, uh, uh, David, in terms at least of climate journalism, you uh, kind of um, debuted with a bang or came out of nowhere with a bang with a 2017 New York Magazine story called The Uninhabitable Earth, which is now, of course, uh, the name of the book you just released. Uh, As far as I know, that was the most read story in New York Magazine website history and uh, remains so as far as I as far as I know. It actually, it was passed by an excerpt that we published of Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. So no longer holds the title, but you know, close enough. (laughs) Close enough. Yeah. Number two. Um, I want to get into that piece a little bit uh, later, but first uh, maybe just tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, covering climate change as your beat. Well, um, totally by accident is the short answer. I mean, I'm a, um, I'm a journalist. I'm mostly an editor, actually. I don't do a ton of writing. But to the extent that I do write, for a number of years, I've been sort of especially interested in the near future of science and technology. And, you know, so f- following that news um, as best I could, reading academic research, um, you know, reading some obscure magazines and, and websites that cover it. And... I wasn't especially interested in climate. I'm um, a lifelong New Yorker and have always thought of myself as, you know, an urbanite who is living outside of nature. And while I was concerned about um, climate change in theory and in the abstract, I always also sort of thought I was conducting my own life outside of its forces and also trusted that most of our policymakers and leaders would, though the threat was meaningful and large, would be able to figure out a way out of it. Um, And beginning in about 2016, the stuff that I was reading from new research from um, academics and scientists, first of all, I was just seeing much, much more about climate change than I had seen before. Um, It seemed like 80% of the news I was reading from science generally was about climate. And secondly, that it was much more harrowing, painting a much bleaker portrait of what was possible over the coming decades than places that I thought of as my competitors. So um, this is like punching up a little bit, but places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the New Yorker, you know, the Atlantic um, tended to be talking about the issue. So I saw that there was like a a great um, divergence between the news as I understood it from climate science and the way that that story was being told in climate journalism. And I responded to that really as a journalist, um, more than as an environmentalist, more than as a advocate, I just felt that there was a story to tell there, um, that the news was getting bleaker by the day, and in a way that actually many scientists were reluctant to talk super forthrightly about um, to the public because they were worried about what that what scaring people would, would mean. Um, and not just that it was darker, but that the story was bigger. And by that, I mean, you know, we had sort of learned through the 90s and the 2000s, hearing about climate change in this and that arena, that it was mainly an issue of sea level rise. I mean, so much of the conversation about climate change was about sea level. 
And that meant and, that, and, pol- and polar bears. Don't forget the polar bears. Yeah, polar bears. Um, <laughs> and it, that meant that if you were off the, if you lived off the coast, you could feel like it was going to happen elsewhere to people living somewhere else. And that while you may understand that it was a tragedy, what was going to happen to Bangladesh or Miami Beach, say, you could also feel like your life was going to be not all that directly impacted. And the more that I was piecing together this research, the more it felt like an all-encompassing system that enclosed us all and, in fact, governed much of what we think of as modern life. So it impacts, you know, economic growth. It impacts conflict and not just conflict between states but between individuals so that murder goes up when temperatures rise and that kind of thing. Right. Well, you you uh, you begin both the piece uh, and the book begin with the same striking line, which is it is worse, much worse than you think, <laughs> which uh, which I think captures everything. So so I, I want to get into some of the journalism dynamics and some of the social dynamics. But first, I think just for for the benefit of maybe of listeners who have not followed climate change very closely or have not kept up with the news or who who have that sort of same vague understanding of it that y- you had a few years ago, sort of as a casual news consumer. Um, let's give those listeners a sense of what you mean by that when you say it's worse than you think. Um, you've said that 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 traditional climate change coverage uh, is misleading, sort of gives you a false sense of security in three ways, um, namely the sort of speed, the scale, and the severity of the problem. Walk walk through those real quick and say what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that climate journalism is changing a little bit in this way, so it's not as um, misleading as it was just a few years ago, but I think it was a problem for a really long time. So those three problems are speed. Um, I think we had been sort of led to believe that climate change was really slow, that it was going to happen on the timescale of decades at the fastest and probably centuries. And so we would, when we were worried about it, we were worrying about our grandchildren and their children, not our own lives and the lives of our children. Um, In fact, half of all the carbon that we've emitted into the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels has come in the last 30 years. That's since Al Gore published his first book on global warming. It's since the UN established its IPCC panel on climate change, which effectively broadcast to the world a scientific consensus that this was a real problem, a real threat that everyone needed to worry about. We've done more damage to the climate since then than we did in all of the centuries before then, which means we've done more damage knowingly than we ever managed in ignorance. And that's really terrifying in terms of what it means going forward, though it's also, of course, a terrible indictment for how we've behaved over the last three decades. So that's the speed. Things are happening much, much faster than we thought. We're doing this damage in real time. And because of extreme weather, we're starting to see the impacts in something like real time as well. Yeah. As I've talked to, as I've talked to people about your book, I find that that's the most cited fact that they tell me, the one that struck them hardest in the sense that the the bulk of the damage that's been done to the climate has been done by people who are alive now and knew what they were doing and who who will live to see the effects. This is not a centuries thing, right? It's a it's within a generation. And that's really, I think you're right, not how the story was traditionally told at all. And it means that we have that same responsibility going forward. So the next 30 years are going to be just as consequential as the last 30. The last 30 brought us from what was basically a stable climate, although scientists would dispute that, but functionally a kind of stable 
livable climate to one that where we're now on the brink of something like real crisis. And if we project ourselves forward 30 years, um, we could have brought ourselves to really catastrophic impacts in that same amount of time. So if we get there, it'll be because of what we do going forward, not because of what happened 100 years ago or 150 years ago. So the responsibility is really, really ours. That's that's the main lesson of the speed. Um, the second issue is with the scope. So I mentioned the coastlines and Arctic melt um, issue before. This really was the main way that scientists, science journalists, science communicators, advocates talked about the issue until very recently. Um, we've started to see hear a little bit more about extreme weather, heat waves, droughts, hurricanes, and and wildfires have been um, a much bigger part of the story over the last few years for sure. But up until a few years ago, really the the when people were telling you the big picture state of um, climate change and what we should be worried about, they were almost invariably talking about sea level rise and coastlines. And yeah, as I mentioned a minute ago, that meant that if you didn't live on the coast, you could feel sort of safe. But the more that we know about what these impacts are going to be, the more total and all-encompassing a system climate is. And it sounds naive to say, right? Like, we all live inside nature. That's what the air <laughs> is that we breathe when we walk down the street. No matter how man-made that environment is, it is also an environment that has been built within nature and still exists within nature. But I speak as someone who you know, I didn't live that way. I didn't think that way when I was, um, as recently as a few years ago, I felt like New York is a fortress. There's no nature that can penetrate this fortress. But you're seeing, especially with the wildfires in Los Angeles, I mean, the forces of nature are coming roaring back and they are going to get to us no matter where we are, no matter how fully defended against those forces we are. And th that's just, the wildfires are a really vivid case. I think they're in a grotesque, perverse way, kind of a good teaching tool for climate change. Grotesque because they also involve, obviously, so much suffering. But there are a lot of other more um, mysterious forces that climate change will unleash into our lives as well. So that's, you know, the impact on economic growth. Um, there's really good research showing that if we stay on the course that we're on by the end of the century, global GDP could be at least 20%, possibly 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. Um, there is an Im impact on public health. You know, mosquitoes are going to be flying much farther afield, which means that all of the mosquito-borne diseases that have been restricted to the tropics for all of human history will be transported elsewhere. There's an impact on conflict. So for every half degree of warming, you get between a 10 and 20% increase in warfare, which means, again, if we get to this level that we're scheduled to at the end of the century, if we don't change course, we could have twice as much war than we do today, and in fact, more than that, likely. And um, yeah, that, that violence happens at the level of nations. It also happens at the level of um, individuals. So you see more rapes, more murders, more assaults. That science is a little, um, it's a little more complicated to unpack, and it's like a little less um, clear to rely on than some of the um, some of the stuff about, say, sea level rise, but it's terrifying. Um, the impacts are seen on agricultural yields. So if we end up on the course that we're on by the end of the century, we could have grain yields that are half as bountiful as the ones that we're counting on today. And we could have considerably more people to feed with that, those crops that are growing um, much less productively. And it's really, it's, you know, when you walk through all of the impacts, you just start to see this is not one issue among many. It's not one political problem. It's not one cultural challenge. It is the system in which we are all going to conduct our lives going forward. Um, that is how total and all-encompassing um, climate change is. I, I really feel like this century that we're walking into will be 
dominated by these forces in much the same way that you could say modernity dom dominated the 19th century or financial capitalism dominated the late 20th. And it's there's almost nothing that you can look at in modern life, even as an urbanite living in an affluent city like New York City, that won't be impacted in some way by climate. And that's one of the big things I'm trying to do in my book is get beyond the coastlines and the, and the sea level rise questions, although I deal with those a bit, um, to all of the more unusual, personal, um, humanities-based questions about how we'll endure in this new environment. So that's all the the sort of scope question. Then the third one is severity. Scientists you know, really have focused on this two-degree threshold for a long time. In climate, as you know, sometimes it's misleading to talk about thresholds because 1.9 and 2, you know, it's hard to know when we're going to hit wet and what each tiny tick of degree means, but they have a way of focusing attention. And scientists' attention have, the, the, their attention has been long focused on two degrees, which is often talked about as this kind of threshold of, of catastrophe and which many of the island nations of the world have described as, as a genocidal level of warming. And because scientists were so focused on that threshold, I think most lay readers understood it as a ceiling of what was possible, that that was a kind of worst case scenario. Given where we are now, it's basically a best case scenario. I, you know, there are some, there's some unusual technological innovations that could possibly allow us to avert two degrees of warming. But through the process of conventional decarbonization, which is like replacing dirty energy with clean energy, I really don't think there's any chance that we stay below two degrees. So that's basically our best case scenario. And the science suggests that some ice sheets would um, begin an irreversible melt at that point. The UN believes that we'd have hundreds of millions of climate refugees. Many of the biggest cities in, in South Asia and the Middle East would become unlivably hot in summer, which means you couldn't go outside. You certainly couldn't work outside in summer without incurring a lethal risk. That's going to happen two degrees probably by mid-century. Um, and that's really, really bad, but it's about our best case scenario. What we're on track for by the end of the century is four degrees or north of four degrees. And there was basically, because there was so much focus on this two degree level, there was basically no storytelling about what it, what life would be like north of two degrees. Nobody was really willing to consider what life was going to be like at two degrees. There's that one, uh, the, the World Bank, I think, I feel like did one big report on on four degrees, a big highlight report on yeah, four degrees. Yeah, turn down the heat. You know, yeah. there's these like corny titles for the reports, but yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that's the world that we're almost certain to be living in. I mean, maybe not all the way to four degrees. I, I'm, I think we'll, we will avert that at least this century. Um, but this range from two to four, which is basically from our best case scenario to our worst case scenario this century, it encloses just about all of the imagine, uh, you know, all of the outcomes that you could possibly imagine for humanity. And yet it was almost entirely undiscussed in like the mainstream climate press, which was focused so much more about one degree, 1 1.5 degrees, two degrees. And so there were huge questions left unaddressed, unanswered, unexplored about what life would be like at three degrees or at four degrees. And at four degrees, it really does begin to start to look like a climate hellscape. I mean, I think we can talk about this a bit more. I think it's, you know, there'll still be civilization around. Humans will still be around. There'll still be people who probably think of their lives as prosperous and happy. But you're talking about global climate damages um, totaling $600 trillion, which is double all the wealth that exists in the world today. Um, you're talking about climate refugees probably approaching 500 million. And also, I don't know, I, I, I still to this day don't know how or whether this affects most people. 
But the fact that we will have driven most of the rest of the life on the planet extinct, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to put that in GDP terms, but but that's a that's a weighty that's a weighty thing to contemplate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. I I come at this subject as someone who is a little bit less invested in the fate of animals than I think most people who write about climate and the environment. But me too. Me yeah. <laughs> too. Me too. I'll admit, I I came from outside of environmentalism uh, as well, and you know, I don't. You know, I'm not a big hiker either, and you know, I I don't feel that sort of intrinsic love of nature. But just on a moral i mean when you when you're talking about numbers that big and effects that large it's very striking even if you don't you know even if you're not a nature lover oh of course yeah and that has huge human impacts i mean i think one of the one of the ways i've you know the the book is a kind of big picture look at the state of climate science but one of the few ways i've tried to narrow the gauge and focus it is to really focus on human impacts but what happens to animals affects us too and this goes back to what i was saying earlier that like you may think that you live outside nature Nobody lives outside nature. Nobody lives disconnected from nature. And if we lose all ins all the insects in the in the world, and personally, I think that some of the um, research about that has been a little overstated. But um, there have been a bunch of reports recently that the insects are dramatically declining. That will have a major effect on you know animal ecosystems, plant agriculture, and these effects just add up. To, on one another. I think it's possible right. if you're just thinking about one effect, if you're just thinking about sea level rise, or if you're just thinking about drought, you're just thinking about the effect on crops, you're like, oh, well, we can all together, we can figure out how to address one of these issues. But it's everywhere you look, absolutely every aspect of life on this planet is going to be impacted by these forces. And when you see it that totally, when you see it as that kind of all-encompassing system made up of hundreds or thousands of challenges, each of which would be overwhelming to a, to a kind of generation to, um, to solve, it just gives you a sense of the, the scale of the problem as a whole. So many people will point, point out to me, you know, the example of the, um, the hole in the ozone, which we quote unquote solved, although there's actually some right. doubt about whether we've solved it. But it's like that was such a trivial challenge compared to the all-encompassing challenge of climate change. Yeah. And the one other um, uh, misunderstanding that I think is very frequent and, and that you sort of address obliquely at a couple of times in the book, but I think even people who, who study this and who think about this a lot, because so much of the of discussion is oriented around A, two degrees, and B, 2100, this century, right? What's going to happen this century? What temperature are we going to reach this century? We sort of tend to forget that time is not going to stop at the end of the century. And even if we limit temperature rise, you know, sort of optimistically to two or two and a half or three degrees, time will continue and and temperatures will continue rising. So it's not just a 2100 target here, the bigger, larger target is kind of uh, uh, bending the curve, as they say, like stopping the rise and reversing it, which is, you know, which is like if you need to make the task even bigger, is, is an even bigger uh, and more daunting task. Yeah. I mean, it really it really messes with your sense of timescale um, because on the one hand, you have this, you know, if you take the UN's um, reading seriously, which I think, you know, there, there are problems with it and shortcomings, but I think it's basically the best um, shared conversation we can all have about, about climate. If you take their, um, their perspective seriously, we need to have our global carbon emissions over the, by 2030 in order to avert catastrophic warming. That is an extremely short time frame. It's even shorter than the time frame that I was talking about, that sort of 30-year time frame. 
So we have an enormous amount of responsibility in a very short amount of time. But the damage that we could do if we fail to take action will unfold, as you say, over many centuries, maybe even millennia. And so we're dealing with, at the same time, an incredibly compressed sense of time and urgency and responsibility. At the, at the same time, um, an unbelievably elongated sense of impacts that are so so drawn out that we can't really comprehend. Like, what would it mean if in the year 2400, it's seven degrees Celsius warmer than it is today? <laughs> right, um, right. There's so many different components to imagining that scenario that it's impossible for us to really take it seriously. But we are imposing that temperature burden on those future centuries in these decades. Um, and that is, you know, that that mix of responsibility, I think, is really confusing and disorienting to people. But I think it's also a sign of just what a profound, um, like, if you pardon the expression, existential um, situation we find ourselves in, that we're dealing with really these epic, epic timescales. Um, totally, both- totally mismatched to our <laughs> our cognitive and emotional uh, uh, machinery on both sides, really, uh, of that equation. Yeah. I mean, to judge from our how, our, how, how little action we've taken, absolutely mismatched. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the one other misunderstanding or, or aspect that I feel is not well appreciated by the public, <clears throat> which you also uh, touch on several times, is I think we get the impression when we talk about this, people talk about um, you know, X amount more rainfall, X amount more storms, and people get in their head uh, a sense of sort of we're transitioning from this to that, right? And so, you know, that will happen and we'll adjust our systems to fit with that. But but there is no that. There is no new uh, uh, steady state, right? What's happening, what's beginning now is continuous, relentless, rapid change, which in a sense is harder than any given end state, right, for for humans to adjust to. And to plan for. Yeah. Exactly. And every tick upward of temperature is going to increase suffering. And that means that, you know, we talk a lot about this threshold of a catastrophe, two degrees, but 2.1 degrees is worse than two. 2.1 degrees is worse, is better than 2.2. And, um, I think that yeah we're we're a little we're a little too focused on averting this particular threshold and not conscious enough that this is a system that will be sort of cascading under our feet um, as soon as we set foot on it. This is you know yeah not a new normal, but we're entering into a long time period where nothing will ever be the same. Everything will always a, be a changing. Per, a permanent a permanent loss of normal, right? Yeah. I think that's the. That's the way to put it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, 
or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Okay, well, having established uh, then for our listeners that things are dire and terrifying, I wanted to move on and talk about something else related to that. Uh, in, in the book, you talk about uh, scientific reticence, which I think was James, uh, climate scientist uh, James Hansen's term originally. It refers to the sort of tendency of scientists. I think generally, but specifically and especially climate scientists to sort of uh, reflexively avoid anything that might be seen as alarmism or, uh, you know, sort of over the top. And I think that's for for temperamental reasons, uh, you know, due to how scientists are, are trained. But also specifically among climate scientists, uh, thanks to the sort of 30 to 40 years of kind of relentless bad faith attack they've been under, I think is, has given them a sort of, uh, you know, they've put them in kind of a permanent defensive crouch and given really the whole climate community a, a kind of hyper sensitivity to tone and messaging and and uh, and framing all these things. Um, you, you mentioned this in the book. You are are too nice to do any score settling in the book, but I'm going to drag you back back <laughs> yeah. into that anyway. <laughs> um, when your when your 2017 piece came out in the in New York Magazine, um, it was uh, uh, by design and and explicitly openly uh, dwelling on worst case scenarios. Uh, when that happened, it it prompted just this torrent, this outburst of of criticism from climate scientists and climate journalists and climate messaging people. Um, you later subsequently released an annotated version of that piece, which, you know, from where I'm sitting, more or less settled ninety five percent of the strictly scientific questions. I mean, you more or less had a citation for every line in the piece. And so what was left of the criticism was basically about tone. You're too dark, you're too pessimistic, too focused on worst case scenarios, too fatalistic, not enough hope. Um, I'm curious I obviously have my own thoughts on that, but I'm curious, uh, with the benefit of retrospect, what you took away from that whole episode? Well, it's a complicated question to answer. I mean, it, um, my big lesson was this is too big a story to tell in any one way. I think personally that there's great value in raising the alarm and in using fear. I know that from personal experience because I'm someone who's awakened from complacency by fear about climate change. I also know that from history of environmental activism, you know, when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, not to compare myself to her, but um, 
you know, her book was attacked for being hyperbolic and alarmist. And we have it to thank for the elimination of DDT. We basically have it to thank for the creation of the EPA. Um, many, many campaigns being waged over the years in the environmental movement and outside of it have drawn on alarm and panic and fear to mobilize public opinion and action. And I just think the lessons from that are obvious that it's useful. Now, I don't think that like being scared about climate change is the only correct mood. It's not the only mood that I have about climate change. There are times when I'm reading about carbon capture technology and I feel really optimistic. There are times when I'm, you know, moved by the tragedy of it. There are times when I'm interested primarily in sociological questions about or, you know, philosophical questions, how we make sense of this, how we're going to navigate this new world together, um, what our politics will look like, what our culture and storytelling will be like, all those kinds of questions. And I don't think it makes sense to approach this story, which is the story of our time and which will dominate all of our lives if we don't change course quite rapidly, as though there's only one way to talk about it. It just seems so narrow. I could defend using alarmism as the only way if we had to only go one way. I think it's that valuable. And more importantly, I think it is the lesson of the science. I'm really not layering on much beyond what the scientists themselves are projecting for this future for us. It's the facts that are scary. And if the facts are scary, I think we owe it to the world to share that information so that we can make choices and decisions, take policy action, commensurate with the scale of the threat and the urgency of the crisis. But more importantly, I felt at the time, and I feel even more strongly now, why does every article about climate change, every speech about climate change, every book about climate change have to come out of the same cookie-cutter mold? I, yes, and they and they're so boring. <laughs> anyone yeah. who's read more than anyone who's read more than one of them can practically recite them from memory at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that article um, because I thought that there was a kind of storytelling shortcoming with climate. I felt that the way that I saw the issue, both scarier and more total and all encompassing, was not a way that I saw reflected in much storytelling. And I thought, well, there must be people like me who see it that way too, or who would like to see it that way if someone would tell it to them that way. And also imagine imagine finding out that like the people in your society who you have charged with developing scientific knowledge knew something of this scope and horror and and had decided to communicate with you like you were a nervous child. Like it's just so it's so condescending. I would be so angry, you know, like the the notion that we need to like treat the public as though as though we're teaching preschool almost or not even i mean not not even talking about impacts north of 2 degrees it's not just that they were often couched in euphemism it was that this whole range of possibility was basically off limits and yet that's not like very unlikely but still tinily possible outcome that's like where we are headed my article, my magazine article was, you know, focused on temperature rises of five, six, eight degrees. So even, I even mentioned a point or two up to 11 or 12 degrees. So these are warming levels that we're very unlikely to see, you know, on timescales that make sense for us to plan for, but which remain technically possible. And I thought it was valuable 
um, to showcase those outcomes. The book is much more focused on this two degrees to four degrees range, which is really where we're headed. And the absolutely horrifying thing about it is like it's not less scary than the article. It's, <laughs> it's basically just as terrifying, even though I'm not going through the exercise of walking through worst case scenarios. I'm, walk, I'm just walking you through the science about what the science says about our likely outcomes. Um, yeah. And, and like we need to we need to adjust. We need to plan. We need to do everything we can to avert these outcomes. But we also need to understand what they promise and threaten so that we're informed as we walk into this new world rather than, um, you know, stumbling into it blindly, which is really how I feel we've been acting for a long time. And yeah, I, I just felt like it was a real it was kind of a testament to kind of the insularity of of the climate community that somehow on the basis of these sort of sketchy, scattered social science results had kind of convinced itself that in this vast sea of indifference and ignorance and complacency we find ourselves in that like scaring a few people is the greatest danger. It was just the whole thing kind of struck me as surreal. I think that's exactly right. I, it's something I've been thinking about more and more, just how the people, even some of the most prominent, most famous, most well-known um, writers and communicators on the subject seem really to be speaking to the choir, to the people who are already committed and converted, and many of whom probably are actually at risk of burnout, um, for whom, you know, if they've been working for a couple of decades, they don't see much progress. I think you can slip into fatalism and despair, and that would be that would be bad. But the number of people who are on the brink of despair about climate to me just seems transparently categories smaller than the number of people who are too complacent about the issue. When I look around the world, when I talk to my friends, my family, you know, when I watch TV, it just seems so obvious to me that at the level of individuals, but also at the level of our politics, at the level of our culture, we're far, 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 far too complacent. And the risk of like fatalism is just trivial compared to the risk of complacency. Um, but it's I see the same effects on like people ask me all the time about, you know, my lifestyle choices and my diet, my travel. And it's true actually that, you know, over the last year or so I've I've really come to feel a lot more guilty about air travel and will be doing less of it going forward. But I also know that, first of all, that like the impacts of individual choices are really trivial compared to what policy can achieve on this on this basis. And in fact, I think it's basically a kind of neoliberal distraction that we've been taught that we can make our political mark on the world through what we buy and what we eat rather than the politics that we that we push forward. But putting that aside, it's like you really want to tell a newcomer to the climate movement that they're not a legitimate activist or advocate because they happen to be slow in giving up meat or travel. Yeah. Yes. We want more. We wanted to make a, a lifestyle choice, right? It's got to be like you have to sign on to the whole package of, you know, a certain set of concerns, a certain group of people you're hanging out with, a certain, you know, like clothing and music styles like <laughs> how high of barriers do we want to raise for people to get involved in this yeah obviously we need as many people as we can get to care as much about it as we can get them to care and you know anything that we do to like raise the cost of admission is going to be really damaging in the long term so i you know i have the same perspective about that as i do about the storytelling question which is just let's make this a big 10 anybody who cares about the climate 
bring them on in. Like, like come on board. I mean, I'm, I'm a total newcomer. I'm not in a position to be welcoming people or anything like that. But I just think strategically, morally, politically, obviously the logic is in more people caring more, not in making sure that everybody who does care cares in the optimal um, way. As though we know what an optimal way even is, you know. I also feel like uh, this confusion is is related to the confusion of, uh, and you know, I've written about this before. Sort of climate kind of entered our political uh, life through the channel of environmentalism, and has now sort of been categorized as a as a capital E environmental problem, and consequently, sort of all our habits of thought and all our sort of historical experience with environmentalism and all the kind of cultural associations of environmentalism all kind of attached to climate in people's minds. And I just really don't think they fit very well. I think those are a mismatch. And part of that, it's illustrated by this question of personal action. Like, you know, on, even, even on something like polluting your groundwater, if you and your neighbors, two or three of your neighbors, make a choice to not dump junk in the water, you can actually have like a measurable effect on the quality of water. Small, but measurable. But the scale of climate change is so utterly out of whack with that. I just don't think people, I think it's like a difference in kind and people are thinking of it as a difference in degree, probably because they're thinking of it as just another environmental pollution problem. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's important to remember everything we do in the modern world has a carbon impact. And to reduce that or eliminate it will require a really thorough rebuilding of just about everything that we know and recognize as contemporary life. So our infrastructure, our transportation, our agriculture, um, it's... It's really everywhere, and that can be totally overwhelming, but it also means it's a problem exclusively for, as far as I'm concerned, for politics. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just think um, there's, you know, there's reason for hope there that politics is moving quickly. People are, um, there's a lot more grassroots activism, um, both in the U.S. and in Europe, um, you know, Greta Thunberg's climate strike, the Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise, the, the impacts it's had on, on producing the Green New Deal here in the States. Um, and the polling is, is really strong. Things are moving actually quite rapidly over the last few years, much more rapidly than I would have predicted or um, than we've seen in, in the recent past. But the challenge is huge. And whether we can leverage that, that um, energy into an answer to the problem that actually can address it, um, I think it's a real open question. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. 
That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Well, um, let's, I, I want to get back to politics in a second, but let's, um, uh, I thought uh, the first two sections of your book, I just found uh, devastating. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been studying this stuff for 15 years now, and I have uh, had a kind of a built myself a, a pretty good fortress of, <laughs> of compartmentalization <laughs> and strategic, strategic denial, uh, but it did not withstand the avalanche of, of, of facts that you, that you marshal in these uh, uh, first two parts. So I think that was a, a great public contribution on its own. But actually, the the part of the book that I found most sort of fascinating and novel and different than most of this climate stuff I've read about is the third section, uh, which you which you call the climate kaleidoscope, and it get it, it gets into um, addressing effects of climate change that don't frequently get discussed, namely kind of the social um, and the psychic. And even kind of the mythological uh, effects of this on our on our culture, on the way we think about ourselves, and our storytelling is really uh, really fascinating. So, um, just just to start off, could tell us what you mean by the term climate kaleidoscope. I think what I mean is that when we look out at the world twenty years from now, we won't be able to see it except refracted through the prism of climate change that the forces of global warming will be so universal that their fingerprints, or in many cases, their footprints, will be everywhere. And in some cases, those impacts will be undeniable in the case of, you know, looking at the path of a hurricane. Um, in other places, they'll be a little stranger. So I think you know, to name one random example, I think the wellness culture that we've developed over the last few years has been in part as a response to intuitions of environmental doom. Um, and impacts like that are likely to multiply dramatically as the climate situation gets worse. But by kaleidoscope, I also mean that we can't see the whole picture in our heads at once. It's all fractured and refracted and, you know, broken in against itself. Um, that the force of warming is confusing in addition to all of the other impacts that it has on us. And so what I'm trying to do in that section is um, isolate a few areas that you can think about a little more clearly or sort of... Um, in a more segregated way and walk through, you know, I don't know what, what, what it will mean for our pop culture, our movies and our television to be living in, you know, a world three degrees warmer. I don't know for sure. I'm not making predictions, but I'm just sort of sketching out some of the terms of what is, you know, what is likely to unfold, what kinds of transformations are possible. And then I do the same for our relationship to technology. What do we expect from technology? What do we think it owes us? What do we think it's responsible for? Um, to what degree of ownership do we feel we have over technology? What degree of ownership do we feel technology has over us? And to what extent will we rely on tech to solve this problem in the form of carbon capture or distract us from it in the form of, say, you know, Smartphone, func functionally smartphone addiction, um, virtual reality. Yeah, all that. Um, 
our relationship to capitalism. Like, what extent do we to what extent do we think that climate change is the fault of capitalism? To what extent could climate change threaten capitalism as an all-encompassing system, which I also think is possible? How are we likely to navigate a future in which we are probably still going to want to trade? We're still going to want some creature comforts and consumer goods, but we have lost the promise of perpetual future economic growth that was the basic infrastructure of modern life, at least in most of the West since World War II. I know, as you know, speaking personally about that, I'm someone who came of age in New York in the 1990s. I'm an end of history kid. I really did believe, <laughs> even though I was skeptical of these meta narratives at the time, I would have argued with you if you put them forward to me. I still, in my core emotional relationship with the world, I thought over time things got better, people got richer, where the world got more just and more peaceful. I thought that the arc of history. Yeah, and it, I saw it moving in my, you know, in my from my childhood to my teenage years, and I expected that that would continue throughout my entire adult lifetime. But now I'm just 20 years later, and I've gone from being an end of history kid to an end of the world prophet, and <laughs> that that is largely the result of climate change. I mean, that is, um, you know, there are obviously a lot of other things that are unfolding. Our politics are falling apart, which it will have an impact on how we deal with climate, which is maybe something we can talk about later, but. You know, the the basic idea that future generations are going to be better off than previous generations, this is such a deeply ingrained idea. It really does govern our emotional relationship with the world. And I really do feel like climate change threatens to, if not completely eradicate it, then meaningfully shake that as a, as a presumption and really limit just how much growth and progress we'll be able to measure in the decades ahead so that we may not be worse off, but like I think we're, you know, we're, we're going to be moving much more slowly into the future and what that means for how we relate to the future, how that relates to, the, you know, our how we relate to our children um, and what we expect from politics, what we expect from the economy. All those things are really tied up in this in this um, in this sort of major meta narrative, which um, I think climate change will really undermine. Yeah, I, that really struck home for me that 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 part of the book. And f for me, it's been a bit of a, 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 a two sided thing. I like you, I think probably wouldn't have explicitly said as much, but I had no idea how thoroughly and implicitly I had kind of imbibed that vision of history. You know, it's sort of like Obama was its last and greatest spokesperson. You know, it's deep in his blood. It's his it's his sort of life story. And I and and um, for, you know, Trump, Trump for me was sort of <laughs> began to dislodge that. And then when I started thinking about climate in combination with the forces that had brought about Trump and I thought it, I started thinking about how the forces that brought about Trump will interact with the forces driving climate change. And it really you really start to have to strain to see that arc <laughs> once you start contemplating what's going on and what we can anticipate in the in the near future and to me also like maybe this is the same for you but not only did i not know how much i had kind of imbibed that but i i have found the loss of it tragic it, it you know it's it's sad it is genuinely sad for me almost the saddest thing about all of this is that sort of hovering in the background is that that hope that sort of in the aggregate in the long term in the long view 
things will basically work themselves out. Once you lose that, almost all these more proximate, you know, sort of uh, 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 crises just take on a whole different character. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel exactly the same way. And I also feel like, God, how how naive I was and how privileged, you know, to be to be really I mean, to be looking out at the world of the 1990s and being like, everything's great. Yeah, we've got this nailed um, more or less. <laughs> got this nailed. Coasting um, in, coasting in for a landing. And I do, you know, I do think that the way that these climate, you know, the climate change interacts with um, our current politics is really fascinating. I think you'd have to say, if you were making predictions in a lab, that what you would expect from a world that was getting a little hotter and therefore producing a little more resource scarcity and a little more pressure on um, particular societies would be yep. a retreat into self-interest. And I think that's basically what you're seeing around the world. There are a lot of climate scientists who believe that the whole phenomenon of Middle Eastern terrorism, Islamic terrorism, is a result, at least in part, of climate pressure and that we're likely to see more strife of that kind um, going forward as a result, which is not encouraging. I've always thought that one of the one of the most naive beliefs that a lot of climate people have had for a long time is this notion that, you know, people are kind of sleepwalking now, but once there's a sufficient sort of string of disasters or once enough horrible things happen in close succession, it'll wake people up and they'll get started on this. But it's always seemed to me vastly more likely that a string of disasters is going to exacerbate the worst, most tribalist, most nationalist, most violent tendencies. Like it, t typically stress and anxiety do not produce an outbreak of cosmopolitan, you know, yeah. fellow feeling. Well, I think the, I, I mean, I feel this exactly the same way. And I think we've seen in the way that Europe has responded to the Syrian refugee crisis as, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of case study in that. And that was a that was one million Syrian refugees who made their way to Europe. There were more refugees than that, but they didn't make their way to Europe. And that totally destabilized that continent's politics. The UN's low end estimate for how many climate refugees we're likely to see by 2050 is 200 million. I think that that's numbers high, but even if it's 50 million, then it's 50 times the Europeans' crisis. <laughs> um, now, there's, I think there's some, there are a couple reasons that I have a little bit of hope about this, and they may be totally naive, and they may be functions of wishful thinking, but there is some social science that shows that the sort of initial response to an influx of newcomers um, in a community is harshest, and that when more newcomers are there and the proportions change, then the community can become more welcoming. So maybe that will happen at a global level. I think that there's some reason to think it might, other reasons to think that's, you know, naive, but I think it's possible. Well, again, then though, you but you have to think that like in isolation, yes, but once again, you know, the you got to train yourself to think like a like a a, a climate alarmist ie there's going to be like 10 other terrible things yeah. going on at the same time so it, people are not going to be in a general mood of no absolutely uh, uh, of acceptance generally one of the most memorable studies i i came across recently uh, suggested that by 2100 if we continue warming unabated that there will be communities in the world that could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once, which just gives you a sense of what kind of impacts we're talking about. But I just wanted to mention the, the other reason that I have for some hope about um, an evolving geopolitics is that I don't think we can continue with the politics that we have in an age of real dramatic climate change. I think that we will see a new order emerging that puts 
climate at the center in much the same way that human rights or peacefulness and prosperity were at the center of the post-World War II liberal international order. I don't, I don't know that the, the global order that emerges will be kinder or more humane on questions of, for instance, climate refugees than the one that we have today. But I do think that there will be some kind of meaningful shift. And it's hard to make projections about, you know, what kind of response the world will have to some of these challenges if the whole political infrastructure of um, the international order is different. And I do think I do think it will be. I, you know, um, MBS, the sort of horrible leader of Saudi Arabia, has said that he needs the Saudi economy to be off oil by 2050. I think he that's contains some real wisdom that it will not be possible by the middle of the century for a country to be producing oil, selling it or burning it, and still expect a seat at the table of nations. Like the the order will change enough, people will understand enough the cost of that kind of activity that it will mean at the very least horribly crippling sanctions and maybe something more like military action, um, which sounds almost pulled out of a sci-fi novel to think that there could be military action to take care of climate. But I don't think it's at all inconceivable. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, it raises, you know, another, I think, sort of subconscious association among climate folks is this idea that if we do wake up and really start internationally focusing on climate change, that will be tantamount to a sort of progressive world order, but I don't necessarily think it will. I can entirely see an international order focused on climate change that is extremely authoritarian, uh, oppre oppressive and authoritarian. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the one of the weird perversities of the present moment that there's actually some um, enthusiasm, I would say, on the climate left for, for instance, like what could be achievable by Xi Jinping in China as like a kind of single-minded autocrat in command of what may be quite soon the world's biggest economy and in charge of um, the world's biggest population and also building much of the infrastructure of Asia and Africa going forward. And that's not a place that like a liberal American would have put much hope 10 years ago. And um, it just shows you how hopeless we collectively find our present politics and how little seems possible from where we sit that we're some of us at some level cheering on the climate awakening of this horrible dictator who's also like thrown several million Muslims into concentration camps. Yes. Well, and another sort of a story from the uh, a different side of the same coin uh, right here in the U.S., you see now this big push from the left for uh, a Green New Deal, the sort of concerted climate action investments, very much wedded to progressive social policy, taking care of people, making sure they have jobs, making sure they keep their health care. And they, and they are finding outraged backlash from other Democrats. So if you want to know how well the sort of conjoining of climate policy and progressive social policy is going to go, you can't even get the left in America to agree on it. You know, how's China going to approach that? How's, you know, Saudi Arabia going to well, approach yeah, what, that? What do, can I ask, what do you make of the like, what seems to be this inherent infighting among even the climate left, even the people who are like engaged on this issue? It's like they're all picking fights with each other over like the smallest rhetorical differences. And what is that about? This is my whole this is my whole <laughs> life, man. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's part just 
people have their little sort of identities and their kind of their thing. You know, you got the nuclear people. Nuclear is their thing. You got people who hate Bernie and the Bernie left, and that's their thing. And everybody's just sort of this is, you know, this is, you know, this is just sort of like evidence that climate is like the fifth priority for everyone, right? Climate gets filtered through these, filtered through these things that people feel in a much more proximate and intense way. Like, you know, the people who hate the Bernie left, that's a, that's a fire inside them in a way that like their sort of general concern for climate change never is. So, so, you know, the, it just gets filtered through the normal politics of the left, which is a, which is full of infighting and ridiculous factional disputes and always has been. That's this was the my experience uh, back in 2008. The last time, you know, Democrats made a go at at unified, comprehensive climate action. They came up with a solution that basically had no fans. You know, the right hated it. The left side of the left hated it. The middle of the left was indifferent to it. And just there was nobody for it. And, you know, I, I sort of like feel like we're kind of like, it's like a waking nightmare. I feel like we're just walking into that whole cycle again. And I have zero idea how to, <laughs> how to stop that other than, other than yelling online. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that's so striking to me is that, um, you know, the deeper you look into the research, the more you see that whatever your political priorities are, they will be impacted by climate. So if you're concerned about economic activity, inequality, either within nations or across nations, that you know that's tied up in climate. If you're worried about conflict and violence against women, like that's tied. Like no matter what your what your hopes are for the future, they depend on some degree of um, stabilizing the climate. And it just seems so clear to me that this is the story, the political story, the cultural story, the um, personal psychological story that governs and touches all of others. And it seems so strange to me that people who are so devoted to it might choose to pick a fight with someone who's, you know, 10 feet to their left or 10 feet to their right, rather than saying, all hands on deck. Yeah, you would think at the very least, the left could unite to just say, Yes, we need to decarbonize and we'd like to do it in a roughly fair and just way, right? That seems simple enough. Can we not get our ass together <laughs> to just say that? When you say, when the UN says the decisions that matter most for centuries are going to be made in the next 10 years, one of the reasons that's so bracing and kind of depressing to me is that it really makes clear that whatever we do we're going to do it with roughly the systems and the people that we've got right now. <laughs> There's not some magic. We're not going to replace the order, you know, replace the old order or whatever in 10 years. So like these are the folks like like Feinstein, <laughs> you know, like Joe Manchin. These are the folks we've, we've got to work with. And so many of them came up in a time, I feel like basically the Clinton years, when the fundamental uh, position or positioning of the left was defensive. You know, Clinton was an essentially a defensive president defending the old advances of the left against the sort of ascendant right. And I just feel like lots of people in Congress, you know, they're old and they sort of came of age in that milieu with that attitude and the sort of whole notion of boldly 
claiming something that everyone knows is politically impossible right now, right? But needs to happen anyway. Just going out on a limb like that is just profoundly at odds with the temperament and history of of that of those people, and you know, and those. Well, are the I, you know, got. I don't, I don't mean to sound like an optimist, but um, <laughs> well, I, how dare you, sir? <laughs> but you know, I, I think there is some reason for hope about this, in the sense that, um, you know, the, the progress on the Green New Deal, which is, you know, as you know better than anybody, it's a resolution. It's not a piece of le- legislation. It's basically a position paper. It doesn't answer many of the tough questions about what we need to do and where we need to invest. But as a sort of statement of principles, it's actually conquered the sort of center of the Democratic Party. You know, at least um, all of the major um, presidential aspirants have signed onto it in some form. That's really remarkable progress. And I do think that a, a president, you know, with a particular agenda can make a huge difference. I think that many of the Clintonite um, holdovers would have been really reluctant to talk about a major healthcare initiative in 2005. But um, once it became the the priority of a Democratic president, um, they came along. And I think that we have to hope for something like that on, on climate. But the challenges that I see are as much... Um, you know, outside of politics as inside of politics, you know, just the in, these infrastructure projects we need to do, they take a long time. Um, the investments we need to make, they take time to pay off. Um, we have a lot of, you know, working systems that we need to replace. And it's in everybody's immediate interest to not replace them yet because they're still benefiting us. And I think those obstacles to me are, are even more concerning. Like even if we decided today to really go as fast as we could to zero out on carbon, like I don't think we could meet the goals that were set in the Green New Deal. I think there are just too many public obstacles out there. I have two uh, sons, two boys, 15 and 13. And uh, I'm given to understand that you have a relatively new uh, daughter. Is that right? A very young daughter? Yeah, she's almost 11 months. Uh, so she will she will live to see all of these kaleidoscopic nightmares that you are describing in your book. She might even see uh, twenty one hundred, and then you know she'll she'll finally know which of our which of our climate models was was right. <laughs> um, what is the story? you tell yourself about her life? Is it just one of sort of decline, of just increasing stress and and violence? Is there a heroic story about our children's lives available to us to, to tell them? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, everything about what we're describing, all of the horrors that we've talked about, they will only happen if we make them happen. They're not going to happen if we stop burning carbon immediately. They're not going to happen if we have carbon emissions in 10 years. They're only going to happen if we continue acting as we do and with a abhorrent moral indifference towards the suffering of many millions or billions of people um, around the world. You know, I live like you do, I think like just about everybody in this world does, I live in part through compartmentalization and denial about it. And when I'm honest, (laughs) I I would say that, you know, when I'm imagining Raka's life, I'm not imagining a climate hellscape. I'm imagining a world that looks a lot like mine. I think that's a reminder of just how strong 
all of our psychological reflexes and biases are, that even someone who's really spent a couple of years deep in the horrors of climate science, when they think about what it means for their own life, they don't think first of wildfires and natural disaster and economic collapse and all that stuff. But I also think that there's some truth and wisdom in thinking that way because nothing about our future is set in stone. It will be up to us to write that story. It will be up to her and your children to write that story. And that will always be the case. So no matter how hellish it gets, no matter how hot it gets, it will always be the case that the following decade could be a little bit hotter or a little bit less hot and could contain a little bit more suffering and a little bit less suffering. And we have our hands on those levers because of our relationship to carbon. We could, at 2100, at four degrees, we could continue creating more suffering or not. The dilemma that we have now, the sort of challenge that we face now, will be always with us in, with climate, even if we'll lose the opportunity to avert anything south of catastrophe. It will still always be the case that there will be some degree of warming we can avert if we take action. And I feel very- Can always get worse. <laughs> Or better. I mean, honestly, or better. Um, with negative emissions technology in particular, I mean, we'll see how that all unfolds, but it's possible that um, we'll be able to reverse some damage. Um, we, You know, it's, it's a huge open question and a huge open story. And when I stand looking at it now, I see it in those epic, mythological, even as uncomfortable as it makes me to say, theological terms, which is to say, like, we brought ourselves to the threshold of true climate catastrophe in the time span of a single generation. We now have about the time of a single generation to avoid unimaginable suffering. And we are the ones writing that story. We are but we will be both the victims or victors, heroes and villains. We will be all of those roles. Um, and that is just an incredible saga that I and you and our children are all going to be participating in together. Truly terrifying, though. I think about all the like the Jim Inhoffs of the world who who say some some version of God's got his hand on the wheels, <laughs> right? God's in control of this, not us. We 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 could never do that. I think that has less to do with any sort of scientific misunderstanding than than something closer to what you're talking about, like theological, like the idea that we are now gods, right? That we are now in charge is in a sense terrifying in and of itself, even separate from all the possible impacts. It's just, that's a level of adulthood <laughs> for our species <laughs> that, I, that I really don't know we're totally prepared for. Yeah, well, let's hope. Well, uh, final final question that Ezra always ends the podcast on. Um, he uh, and our listeners would like to know what three books would you recommend to listeners on on this to, to brief themselves or prepare? I was actually going to answer it slightly differently, which is to get away from climate and environmentalism. So I'm not going to mention Bill McKibben or Betsy Colbert. I'm not going to mention... Um, yeah, Rachel Carson, all those people should read all those books. But um, the three things that I've thought of most often as I wrote this book were um, the first is um, the Tanahasi Coates book, Between the World and Me. Um, and really what I've been trying to do in writing this book is write a kind of um, moral explanation or moral exploration of the meaning of climate change. And um, his work has been really, really important to me. Um, I also have thought a lot about, it's not actually not a book, just a magazine article, but um, that Catherine Schultz wrote for The New Yorker a few years ago, the big one about the possibility of a major oh, yes. Pacific earthquake. <laughs> and oh, just yes. how, um, I mean, the 
it's similar similar in spirit and tone. I think both really um, apocalyptic, but also scientifically rich and and she, and she is such a fantastic wordsmith. Yeah, that that article is a joy to read, and, even though it's terrifying. Yeah, and written with so much humanity too. Um, right. And then the the third thing is. Um, you know, it's it's a a play by um, Wallace Shawn, who um, is someone who's personally really interesting to me, um, and whose work I really adore. The play is maybe actually not his best. It's called The Fever, and it's about it's it's sort of an autobiographical story about how he, an extremely privileged person, he's the son of the longtime New Yorker editor William Shawn, um, basically woke up to the suffering that was being imposed in his name by Imperial America in Central America. Um, and I feel in a certain way that's been my, my story in working on climate is just, first of all, realizing how naive and deluded I was to think um, that this was a solvable problem, that our politicians were in charge of it, and that um, our life was going to get better. But also that all of that damage that has been imposed on the world in a certain way was done in my name. And as a result, it imposes a really intense responsibility on me to act to avert its worst impacts and do whatever I can to um, help alleviate the suffering that has already been made inevitable. So those are the three. Well, that sounds like a, a good note to finish on. Uh, David Wallace-Wells, thank you so much for being here. Great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you to David for being here. Uh, thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we will be back in your ears in just a few days. 